I was so pleased to be invited back since I preached here a couple of falls ago, so you had some sense of, of the way I preach. And then I learned that this morning, either before the service or sometime uh, afterwards, a lightning bolt st struck the uh, Channel 8 tower, and, and we're not actually on television today. So is that coincidence or providence based on <laughs> what was heard in the sermon? I don't know. I'll leave it to your theology to figure it out. Hear these words from the 11th chapter of Genesis. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built, and the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down. Confuse their languages there. So they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Why are there so many religions if there's only one God? I'm going to try to address that question in what uh, the late great preacher and preaching professor Fred Craddock would call an inductive sermon. While you're going to get my thoughts and viewpoints on this, I'm going to let you know a lot about what my journey was in getting to this place. And as you overhear my journey, it's going to give you an opportunity to think about how you think of this question, how you answer. There are so many religions. Why? Uh, why so many religions if there's only one God? Now, scholars sometimes like changing up the questions and thinking about what else might have been asked. Um, we might have another interesting discussion if we changed up the question to, well, you know, if there's only one Jesus, why in the United States are there 217 different denominations? meaning groups that differ so significantly enough about what the truth of Christianity is that we don't want to live together under the same roof, plus at least 35,000 independent congregations that couldn't stand to live joined or yoked with one other. And those are just Christians who all claim to follow the path of Jesus Christ toward God. So let's begin by acknowledging that within our own roof and our own umbrella term Christianity, there's tremendous, sometimes confusing, and not a few contradictory diversities in what it means to be Christian. It is often noted in United Methodist circles that former Vice President Dick Cheney and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton are both United Methodists. So take that diversity and a bit of cognitive dissonance, <laughs> multiply it exponentially, and you'll approximate the great range within Christianity. But the question in the morning is, why so many religions if there's one God? 
my short answer, and you can go, you know, write a grocery list after this, really what the sermon is about, is human beings are finite and diverse. We humans use our finite and diverse thoughts and imagination to try to understand the divine. And the divine is an incomprehensible mystery. As much as we religious people speak of God, God cannot be captured or comprehended in any language, in any text, in any particular religious ritual. Human finitude, coupled with diversity and divine mystery, leads to many religions. Now, let me unpack the short answer. I love this line from theologian H. Richard Niebuhr. We are right in what we affirm and wrong in what we deny. What we deny, he said, is generally something that is outside our experience and about which we can therefore say nothing. What if you grew up in a family where that family was all you knew? Where your parents intentionally kept you and your family so off the grid that you never encountered another family? Well, then someone would write a book, a short story, and make a movie about a very creepy family. <laughs> but when we're very young, we assume that my family is the norm, that everybody is or should be like us. An important aspect of growing up is having friends and experiences that expand our horizons. So we have dinner at a friend's home. And we learn that my family eats diff dinner differently from your family. And oh my gosh, that family took a can of tomato soup and used it as a basis for tomato sauce. <laughs> when we go off to college or serve in the armed forces, we learn that the world and the options for engaging and living in that world are much larger than what we thought when we were children. I grew up in Brookfield, Illinois, which is about eight miles west of Chicago. You think of Chicago and you think tremendous diversity of ethnicities, races, uh, religions and the like. Brookfield had some diversity in religion. It was Catholic and Protestant. <laughs> we didn't mix. Um, and there were, you know, I knew who, the, who, was, who was Irish and who was Bohemian and who was Italian and who was German all by the last names but we were a very white suburb. We were a very bounded suburb. If there was a black person passed through your block, you knew they were not from Brookfield. And we were all told growing up, don't take your bike past this street or that street because you're gonna get into a neighborhood where you're not gonna be welcome. The boundaries were very tight. My understanding of race and my perception of my own whiteness changed pretty markedly in college where for the first time I ran into and lived with and had classes alongside African-Americans. One particular day I was in a sensitivity training session about male-female issues. I was a resident assistant and needed to go through things like that. And I made a comment within the group, well, I have lots of women friends. And an African-American woman in the group looked at me and said, you have a lot of white women friends. Right, slapped me up alongside the face. 
I hadn't really seen that. Uh, she was absolutely right. I haven't made the same mistake since. <laughs> the great historian of religions, Max Mueller, wrote, whoever knows one religion knows none. When all we know is a religion in which we were raised, we tend to think our religion is unique. Well, how different my Christianity becomes when you understand that there are really many very variations on Christianity. How different my perception of Christianity becomes when, one, when I understood the Jewishness of Jesus or that Jesus was a rabbi arguing with other rabbis when he argued with the Pharisees. How different my Christianity becomes when I see the parallels between the Protestant work ethic and in China the Confucianist work ethic. How different Christianity becomes when you see how Hindus or Native Americans in some cases appropriated the figure of Jesus into their religions. And you come to see Jesus differently. J.B. Phillips wrote that classic little book in 1952, and boy, that title still holds. Your God is too small. Our understanding of God needs to get bigger, especially in this century, our understanding of God needs to get bigger. The more we investigate human limitations and human diversity, I think the bigger God becomes. There are many biblical texts that urge or command caution regarding human finitude and imagining God. There's, of course, the second commandment, make no graven images, which means no artistic representation that alleges to show people what God looks like, for you can never take the infinite and render it in the finite without distorting it and turning it into an idol. Many of you probably know the famous little joke story out of Sunday school about a little girl drawing a picture and the Sunday school teacher comes by and says, um, uh, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, well, no one knows what God looks like. And the little girl says, well, they will after they see my picture. That commandment, make no graven images, is there because it's such a human thing to see a picture and then attach our reality to it. And that reality is going to be wrong. There's a whole school of theology within ancient Christianity called apophatic theology, which is to speak of God only in the negative. God is not this. God is not that. God is not this. God is not that. To say something positively about God in their way is to, in fact, create an idol with our words. Or another text, the book of Job. Towards the end, after Job has gotten visited by Mo, Larry, and Curly, um, uh, he's questioning all the really bad stuff that happened to him. He knows nothing of the cosmic drama that we, the readers, know of Satan, God's prosecuting attorney, uh, uh, kind of contesting with God about how faithful Job is and all that stuff. Um, so after Job criticizes God, quite fairly from a human point of view, God's query to Job, you may remember, is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You creature, I'm the creator. When I read God's speeches to Job in which God details the extensiveness of creation, how little human beings understand the big picture, I'm reminded of the uh, series from just a few years ago now that I loved uh, by uh, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson when he redid Cosmos. And he creates this cosmic calendar, right, of the whole history of the universe, 
from January 1st to December 31st. He starts on January 1st with the Big Bang 14 billion years ago. And you go along in the calendar and 4.5 billion years ago, the solar system in which we reside comes into being. And it comes down to December 31st and it's eight seconds to midnight and genetically modern human beings appear. When we learn that there's so much bacteria in the world, scientists give it, I don't know how they figure this out, five to the 30th power. <laughs> um, uh, that's a lot of zeros after it. Um, <laughs> more than all the stars in the universe, bacteria on this planet. So far identified nine, about 8.7 million, the uh, latest count, species of life on this planet. But scientists think that about 80% or more is yet undiscovered based on what we know now. This universe, our own planet, is so much larger and more complex than we've been led to imagine. How much the more so in thinking about God. Then there's the Tower of Babel story. This is what's called in, in uh, scholarly terms an ideological story, meaning a story of origins. How did diversity on this planet of ethnicities and languages come to be? And this is the story our Bible tells about it. In the story, quite familiar, about a ziggurat being raised up to heaven, human beings building this tower. And then there's this phrase used in there uh, because they wanted to go up there and make a name for themselves. Well, that's the phrase used throughout Scripture when somebody wants to conquer somebody else. So what this story is really saying is uh, human beings want to get up into heaven, you know, three-story universe, physically you can get up there, um, get into heaven, dethrone God, throw God out, and take over heaven as a place of residence. That's what this story is about. Well, God didn't like that idea took humans, dispersed them over, confused their languages, created human diversity. So, what's the theological consequence of multiplied languages, multiplied ethnicities, multiple geographical locations? Since we know God only by metaphor, image, analogy, our diversity in perceptions of who God is based on where we live and who we're with is going to change dramatically. Think about what life is like for an Inuit living near the Arctic Circle among snow and whales and seals and days of very long light and very long darkness. Or what it's like for an Amazonian tribesperson near the equator in a rainforest. Very different context. Or your barrel-chested Tibetan mountain dweller living where the trees in the air are very thin and the yak is extremely essential in your way of life. Or you're a Bedouin in Egypt whose only home has been a tent that you can fold up and move at any time and where you're attuned early to the sound of an approaching sandstorm because it's a matter of life and death. In each of these ways, in each of these places, imagine what God is metaphorically. It's going to look different. For any of these folks, if you were to say, Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, what Father means, what heaven means, what kingdom means, is going to all be different. And when you pray daily bread, in many of these cultures, they'd be saying, What's bread? 
they wouldn't be saying, in wheat and grape we find God. So given the facts that human beings are finite and diverse, and awareness of God's mystery, how might we think about the reality of many religions? Here I've been helped in creating some categories, some hooks for a way to believe by a, uh, an English theologian of religions by the name of John Hick, who wrote a book called Interpretation of Religion, where he said there are four basic options for how we frame the reality of there being many religions in the world. First option, he said, would be there is no God and all religions are wrong. Now, most of you are here, I'm going to assume, are not in that category, or you'd be somewhere else at this point on Sunday morning. And that's actually, for American population, it's a very small percentage. About 3% of the people in the United States are hardcore atheists. Another 4% are so agnostics, according to Pew Research. Option two, this is a live option in the United States. There is one true religion, it's mine. Um, that kind of exclusive view is held by about 29% of Americans, according to a Pew Research poll. And here's, in my opinion, where then it gets really interesting. Third option, my religion is true, and other religions are true to the extent that they agree with mine. <laughs> and truth be told, a lot of us will recognize ourselves in that category. It's not a bad category. Between that and this last one, some 65% of Americans, even many evangelical Christians who talk about Jesus' way and truth in life, still say, I still think people of other faiths are going to heaven. 65% of us. Fourth option, Hicks says, is that all religions get something right about the holy. They leave out certain things about the holy and may be wrong about some things about the holy which then, for interfaith engagement, absolutely requires we've got to talk to each other and get to know each other because as we do, God gets bigger. I myself would like to wager on options three or four as the ways that will make for a better 21st century because humankind needs all of the effort we can muster to understand God and life as bigger than my own family, my own tribe, my own circle. The anthropologist Clifford Geertz once wrote that uh, in the modern world, no one will ever leave anyone alone ever again. We are globalized, we are connected, and man, we are really debating as to whether or not we like it. Think Brexit and similar withdrawal forces in Europe. Think about the clashes between various forms of Islam, various forms of Christianity, and various African nations, or in our own presidential election cycle, the issues that are showing up. And we have abundant evidence that humanity is really struggling with being globally connected and questioning, if not rejecting, the reality. My world has certainly evolved from that childhood home where the Peluso way was the only way. As I live on, I get a better and better perception of how small that world was and how my world and my understanding of God needs to continue to evolve if I'm going to live as an agent of God's love, justice, and mercy in this world. 
our God, our world, I'm sorry, can't afford a God who favors my group over the other group. I heard a line the other day that haunts me. We are a world at war with our own diversity. Can you and I make that different? I close with the story uh, of an encounter with a woman in Appalachia um, many, many years ago, uh, going on uh, 35 or so. Um, I, like a lot of youth group leaders in the United Methodist Church, uh, took uh, youth to Appalachia to work on homes uh, for a week to make them warmer, safer, drier. Um, and in one, uh, one week, we met Edna uh, as we spent time working on her roof. Edna is African-American. Uh, when she was about six years old, she was scrounging coal around train tracks, didn't hear the coal train coming, um, and the accident took her legs. So Edna had no legs. Um, she also had no wheelchair. She got around the house on a four-legged chair. She was a very large woman. But she could pivot that chair and get around, and I remember she made lunch for us one day, just the way she moved around that kitchen with the dexterity of a professional athlete. Now, Edna had no formal education beyond uh, some point in high school. I knew she had no money. Um, and I expected that her reality would be quite small. And I was totally wrong. And I learned that one day when one of the kids in the youth group let slip that I was the minister. We didn't always raise theological questions with the people whose home we were working on. Um, um, and so I wasn't sure what would come when Edna sat me down and said, I want to know what you think. Do you think people of other faiths are saved? And we loved Edna by that point, and I said, definitely wanted to be honest, and I said, yes, I believe that uh, God, the God of love revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is much larger than any religion can, can, can contain. And I waited for a reply, not knowing what she was going to say, and what, this is what she said. Well, I think that too. Lots of my people, lots of people in my church don't think so. They quote the Bible that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. But I want to say, I've been a missionary in my church, and I've traveled to other parts of the United States and different parts of the world. Which remember, no legs, no money, no education, but she's been around. She's encountered others. I met people of other religions. I just don't believe that only Christians are going to heaven. So I tell the people who disagree with me, Jesus also said, I have sheep not of this fold. And you don't know what not of this fold means. It could be other churches. It could be people of other faiths. You don't know. You don't know. I think Edna's right. We don't know who all is within God's fold. We do know that the God revealed in Jesus is a God of love and that God's love is broader and deeper and wider than any finite human mind can comprehend. We know that we are finite beings trying to comprehend and relate to an infinite, mysterious, all-loving God in a universe full of realities yet to be discovered as we're still discovering who God is.